0: All right, today we're reading from 2 Samuel 9, 1 to 11. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is the, still the son of Jonathan. Uh, he's lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Mekir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Mekir, son of Amiel. When Mophibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Oh, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your, your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. When Mophibosheth bowed down and said, Oh, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mophibosheth, grandson of your master, Will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said, Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons.
1: Well, here we are in the middle of August, and we are getting toward the home stretch of the series that we've been walking through called Reading. So we've been doing that. We've been finding some different characters uh, in the Old and even in the New Testament that uh, we haven't met a whole lot. People that you might have been somewhat familiar with the name but not sh- so sure of the story. And this morning reading focuses on an act of kindness shown to a cripple. It's a story that actually began, though, when the main character, Mephibosheth, was just five years old. And so I'll begin with maybe a question. What were you doing when you were five years old? Maybe you were learning to ride a bike. Maybe you were learning to print your name. Maybe you were getting ready for your first day of school. And you probably don't remember a lot of specific details unless something dramatic happened to you. So this is a picture of Jude uh, on his... Well, it's not his first day of school because on Jude's first day of school, he was so excited that uh, he was, we took him to the, to the schoolyard and he was like running around with such excitement. He was for some reason running in circles on the pavement and he slipped and he landed on his face. And so there I am, my kid's there for his first day of school, and now he's got blood and gore all over his side of his face. And I remember picking him up and carrying him off the schoolyard, crying and screaming. Um, but the next day, he was happy, he's ready to go. You can kind of see the scars on, on his eyes there, ready to go. So if you had like a, a dramatic event like that when you are five, then maybe you would remember it. But Mephibosheth's story was worse by far. We actually have a little bit of a background in Second Samuel 4 of what happened to Mephibosheth when he was five, and it was worse even than slipping on the pavement on your first day of school. So Second Samuel 4, verse 4. Tells us, this is in parenthesis here, that Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. And here's the backstory: He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So um, his parents, uh, his, his father and his grandfather had been killed in battle. The news came and everyone was afraid. What's going to happen now, right? So the news came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, it seems a little extreme. You kind of picture this in your mind. You picture like a caregiver picking a five year old up and running out and, and dropping, and all of a sudden this child is now lame in both feet for the rest of their life. It seems a little extreme, but modern medicine is something we take for granted, right? We're not, uh, we're used to if someone falls, if someone breaks something, we set it properly, we get the healing, um, but that wasn't the case for Mephibosheth. Uh, when Melissa and I in the former house we lived in when our kids were young, our next-door neighbors had, their daughter would have been like maybe 10 or 11 at the time, and she was carrying their one, her one-year-old little sister down the stairs, and she tripped on the stairs and fell and dropped her sister, her baby sister, down the stairs, and she broke her arm. Uh, this is not a picture of her. This is just another child who is dropped down the stairs by their older sibling. But yeah, I mean, the, the arm heals, or the leg heals, and, and the person goes on to live a normal life. But that wasn't the case with, with Mephibosheth. So the story, is, this morning's story, though, it doesn't, it's not about a child. It's not about him when he was five. It's about what happens many years later, by which time Mephibosheth had grown up and even had a young son of his own. So Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Now we need a little background to this story for us to understand the significance of what David did in this story and how Mephibosheth comes to be one of these characters that's actually worth us knowing about. So... uh this series in the series in the program, I believe there's a, a series introduction that talks about, um, we wanted to talk about how we want to go to the stories in the Bible that aren't so well known. And the actual example that I use is the story of David and Goliath, that basically kind of everyone knows about. Even if you don't go to church, you've heard this story about David and Goliath, how this young shepherd boy came and killed this giant, and he became the king. I mean, everyone's familiar with that story. But actually, it's that story that actually lays the, the groundwork for the story about Mephibosheth here. So David comes, he kills Goliath, he Everyone's like, wow, this guy's a wonderful champion. He becomes a leader and a warrior in Saul's army. Saul was the king at the time. And people start saying, you know what, actually, David is maybe a better leader than Saul. And Saul starts getting angry about this. And so he decides, I actually got to get rid of this David guy. So he starts uh, trying to kill David. And on a couple of different occasions, he, he tries to actually kill him. He he, tries to, he throws his spear at him, literally, and, and David just barely gets out of the way. And so David goes on the run. And while he, David is on the run, while he's hiding with his band of loyal followers in some caves, he actually has a couple of opportunities to kill Saul. So he can kind of vanquish his enemy. He can actually go with the will of the people, and become the king himself. Uh, but I want to read a story. It comes from a book called A Tale of Three Kings, which tells a story of David's relationship with Saul and also David's relationship with his son Absalom, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But this is just kind of an imagined version of what might have happened while David was on the run uh, in the conversation with his, uh, with his loyal followers. Why, David, why? The place was another nameless cave. The men stirred about restlessly. Gradually and very uneasily, they began to settle in. All were as confused as Joab, who had finally voiced their questions. Joab wanted some answers, now. David should have seemed embarrassed, or at least offensive. He was neither. He was looking past Joab like a man viewing another realm that only he could see. Joab walked directly in front of David, looked down on him, and began roaring his frustrations. Many times he almost speared you to death in his palace. I saw that with my own eyes. Finally, you ran away. Now for years, you have been nothing but a rabbit for him to chase. Furthermore, the whole world believes the lies he tells about you. He has come, the king himself, hunting every cave, pit, and hole on earth to find you and kill you like a dog. But tonight you had him at the end of his own spear, and you did nothing. Look at us. We're animals again. Less than an hour ago, you could have freed us all. Yes, we could all be free right now, free, and Israel too. She would be free. Why, David? Why did you not end these years of misery? There was a long silence. Men shifted again, uneasily. They were not accustomed to seeing David rebuked. Because, said David very slowly, and with a gentleness that seemed to say, I heard what you asked, but not the way you asked it. Because once long ago, he was not mad. He was young. He was great. Great in the eyes of God and men. And it was God who made him king. God, not men. Joab blazed back. But now he is mad and God is no longer with him. And David, he will yet kill you. This time it was David's answer that blazed with fire. Better he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge. I will not destroy the Lord's anointed. Not now, not ever. Joab could not handle such a senseless answer. He stormed out into the dark. That night, men went to bed on cold, wet stone, and muttered about their leaders' distorted, masochistic views of relationships to kings, especially mad ones. Angels went to bed that night too and dreamed in the afterglow of that rare, rare day that God might yet be able to give his authority to a trustworthy vessel. This is the background of our story, this tense, years-long battle between David and Saul. But David's understanding of the character of God at least partially explains what he did once he had formally taken the reins of the kingdom in Israel. He says is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? So he finally gets to this position of authority. He finally gets to lead the nation. And one of the first things he does is ask, is there anyone left of the family of that man who was hunting me like a dog that I could honor? That I could show God's kindness? Now the Hebrew word is chesed. I'm going to say the word a number of times this morning. I will not at the beginning every time because I'm sure it would get really obnoxious. Hased is an untranslatable Hebrew word. There isn't a direct English equivalent. But one of the words that you may have heard if you've been around church for a bit um, that is often replaced, that it often is translated as is the word loving-kindness. Now this word was coined about 500 years ago by a guy named Miles Coverdale. He was a Bible translator and he wrestled along with other translators like what does this word mean? What English word do I, do I use to describe this word "Has said" is an unexpected characteristic of God this loving kindness. Sometimes it's just love. Sometimes it's compassion. Sometimes it's, it's grace. It's, used, it's translated many different ways, but it's an, uncharacteris- it's an unexpected characteristic of God. If you were just writing a story, if you were k- kind of coming up with a, a world that had a God in it, you might think, okay, well, what should God be like? And you might say, well, God should be all powerful. God should be able to do whatever God wants to do. Or you might say, God should be like, everywhere at the same time. God should be able to be here, but then on the far stretches of the universe all at the same time. God should be present everywhere. Or maybe you would say, like, God should be all-knowing. God should know all things. There's nothing that God doesn't know or understand. But you probably wouldn't say God would demonstrate and exhibit loving kindness. That's probably not something that you would naturally associate with God. And in fact, no one ever did, really, until God revealed God's self in this way. And so David in the Psalms kind of reflecting on who God is says at one point Psalm 6 verse 4, turn O Lord and deliver me, save me because of your unfailing love, because of your hased. Psalm 1850, he gives his kings great victories, he shows unfailing kindness, Hasid to his anointed. So when David thought about God, yes, he thought of it as power, yes, he thought about his being all-knowing, he thought of him being everywhere, but he also understood that this this loving kindness was at the core of who God is. We might understand this word as said as extending grace, something that's undeserved, but there's this other piece that translators wrestle with that that makes it such a complex word, and that is that it actually has something to do with a loving covenant obligation. That it's not just that God chooses to be loving and chooses to extend grace, but it's actually that somehow God is bound to do this because of what he's promised his people. And so, David and Jonathan. So David became friends with Jonathan, Saul's son, which is kind of an awkward situation, right? So we've got the king is chasing down David, but David becomes friends with the king's son. They become really close friends. And at one point in time, David is really concerned for his life as Saul is hunting him down, throwing spears at him. And he says to Jonathan, you got to help me out here. Like, how can I know that I can trust you? How do I know that I can really trust you? He said, you got to help me get out of this jam that I'm in. And he says to him, David says to Jonathan, as for you, show kindness, has said, to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. And so here, even in the middle of this story, we have this picture of David understands this, this friendship, this deep bond that he has with Jonathan. And he's saying, because of this bond, I'm asking you to show me this, has said. I'm asking you to show your faithfulness. And so after experiencing Jonathan's has said, David looked for someone that he could extend said to. Jonathan spared David's life. He warned him of the king coming after him. He allowed him to flee into those caves that we read about. And then when David finally took the throne, he said, I need to find someone that I can extend this same loving kindness to. And this actually is what demonstrates that he understood said in the first place. Because if he wasn't willing to extend this to someone else, then he actually didn't understand that he would received it. And this is a good kind of point for us to think about as well. If we find ourselves unwilling to extend this kind of undeserved grace to the people in our lives, then chances are we actually don't know what God has given us to begin with. But if we do, if we are willing to, to forgive, and if we are willing to go out of our way and demonstrate this faithfulness and this, and this kindness towards other people, then maybe we've begun to grasp what God has already done for us. Now, it's one thing to offer kindness to someone who deserves it, but to seek out an adversary and extend compassion, that's a whole other story. Finding a modern parallel is difficult, but I was thinking, like, imagine that you have a terrible boss, like you're just a really horrible manager, and they're mean to you, and then finally their boss fires them. They get fired, and you're just like, yes, finally, out from under their their thumb. This is going to be great. But then the first thing you do is say, okay, now that they're gone, I'm going to do everything I can to advocate that their child gets hired in their place. Like, who would ever do that? But that's kind of what is happening here with David. He's like, the first thing he does when he gets out from under the thumb of this raging mad king is to find a way to honor someone in his family. That's a far cry from how we naturally respond. For most of us, in our more honest moments, we actually celebrate when that person who is maybe our adversary gets their just desserts. Dostoevsky, the Russian author, writes in one of his novels that generally, in every misfortune of one's neighbor, there is always something that gladdens the outsider's eye, and and that even no matter who you are. He's saying every single one of us experiences a little bit of joy when our adversary fails or struggles. There's something in us that likes watching other people fail. And if you dare to stick around for our discussion groups at the end of the service here, we're going to talk about this. And we're going to ask you to to maybe admit to a time when you actually felt good about someone else failing, if you dare. But even if David felt that momentary gladness at Saul's demise, he didn't stop there. And this is why Luke would write in the book of Acts in our New Testament uh, that God testified, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Uh, This is the reason. Like, David was willing to go very far to demonstrate God's love for the people around him. We have to acknowledge, though, that doing what God wants us to do will often mean we don't do what we want to do. This is an important thing for us to grasp. If we're willing to do what God calls us to do, it's going to mean that we don't get to do what we want. And some people would say, exactly, that's why I don't want anything to do with religion, because if I had got involved with this Christianity business, I'd have to do things I don't want to do, and that's awkward. Why would I spend my life doing that? But the things we tend to want are almost guaranteed to be self-serving. So I spent this week in Calgary. Uh, As many of you know, our daughter, Sophia, was competing in the U16 National Softball Championships in Calgary. Uh, Unfortunately, their team got knocked out last night, but they finished fifth in Canada, which is pretty darn amazing, I must say. So we had a great time, um, but I actually uh, flew home late last night. Melissa and Sophie are still there. But I flew home late last night, and so I got on the plane, and, and I had that moment. Any of you who've flown, you know this moment. It's like you're walking toward your seat, and it's that fear of, who am I going to spend the next four hours sitting beside, right? Like, you don't know. You have no idea. And so I got there first, and I sit down, and so I'm sitting there waiting, and everyone who's walking up the aisle, I'm like, is it this person, and is it that person? And so the two people who ended up sitting beside me were a grandmother and a two-year-old. And I was like, Seriously? Um, Like this could just go bad. This could be four long hours of crying and whining and whatever else. Um, But I I just decided, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try to make this experience as good as possible for this grandma and we'll see what goes. But this isn't a story about me actually. Um, So I kind of talked to her and I realized that obviously some kind of a a split family. She was traveling with her grandson, bringing bringing him from his mom's house in Calgary to his dad's house in Toronto. Um, And so she was kind of flustered and overwhelmed. About an hour into the flight, the captain turns the, the cabin lights off and it's dark and she's trying to get him to go to sleep, but he will have none of it. He is wide awake. He's like, I'm on a plane. He's like bouncing off the seats. Anyways, and right in front of us, there's a woman and a young woman in her maybe mid-20s and a couple of empty seats. She's actually an employee of WestJet, um, but she's just probably flying back home to Toronto or something. And so she actually turns around to this grandma and she holds up her iPad with the movie Cars on it. And she said, like, would you like to come and watch this movie with me up here? I've got lots of space. And so she invites this little boy, and for the rest of the flight, this little boy hangs out with this total stranger on this flight. And I'm sitting here, like, watching this going, like, what an awesome person. And so at the end of the flight, I was like, I, I leaned over to her, and I was just like, that was really cool. And she's like, "Ah, oh, that's good. I like kids a lot. But I was really leaning over so I could read the name on her tag, because this afternoon I'm sending WestJet an email to let, her, let them know what an awesome employee they have like she didn't have to do this it was not her obligation you're on a plane just mind your own business sit in your seat let them deal with their own crying grandkid but she was like no i'm going to spend the next two and a half hours of my night entertaining this little guy it was awesome like do we think about this do we do we look for opportunities like this or do we just look for uh do it living the way that's going to serve ourselves the most psalm 145:9. 9 the lord is good to all he has compassion on all that he's made Sometimes we forget about this, the fact that every person matters to God. It's not just about ourselves and looking out for our own interests, but it's actually looking out for the, for the tired and frustrated grandmother sitting in the seat behind us. Samir Solmanovich, a contemporary author, writes that our common origin precedes and therefore supersedes all other identities. As in family no matter how difficult it can be to live together, and no matter how dysfunctional the relationships can be, nothing can really separate us from each other. They are, in fact, us. And so as we think about that person sitting behind us on a plane or sitting beside us on the bus or sitting across from us in a restaurant or handling our groceries, we have to realize that they are not like some completely separate person, but they're actually part of this broader human family that we're a part of. So David understood this. And he decided to extend Godlike compassion to Mephibosheth. He calls him in. He says, I will restore to you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now you get the sense, when Teresa read the story, of this kind of like trepidation that Mephibosheth would have been feeling, because he's probably thinking David, like what he would have been thinking by default is that David is hunting down the surviving members of Saul's family. Like that's what a new king would do. You would hunt down the surviving members of the family and kill them off so there would no, be no like public like, uh, claim to the throne from the, from the previous king. So Mephibosheth is like filled with fear, but instead David says, you know what, I'm going to look out for you for the rest of your life. You're going to eat at my table. You're going to be family with me. Now I want to rewind a few weeks. Uh, if you missed it, it's not a big deal. But we talked about a woman named Rispah. And if you were here, we talked about this fact that at one point in time, while David was the king, a group of people named the Gibeonites, they were frustrated uh, with uh, with something. And David heard about this. They were grumbling. And they learned that actually Saul had treated, had been unfaithful to them, had broken a promise to them. And so they wanted retribution. And what ended up happening is that Saul, or David ended up handing over a number of members of Saul's family um, for these people to actually kill it as a way of getting back at them. It was the, his own way of keeping peace with this tribe of people. But as you may have remembered in that story, there's this line in the middle of that story that says that David spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. So at that point in time, there was this time where they were like, we want Saul's descendants and we want them dead. And in that moment, David was like, okay, I'm willing to hand them over, but not Mephibosheth because I made a promise to him. I made a promise that he would always eat at my table and that I would look out for him. So I can't hand him over. David's devotion to God resulted in tangible blessing to the people around him. Now I want to fast forward a little bit. Sometime later, one of David's sons, Absalom, led a revolt. I mentioned that's the second half of the book that I quoted from. This idea of his son rising up against him. Now I I was trying to think, I don't really have a whole lot of experience with that. Probably the closest I came a couple of years ago when Owen was 16, he challenged me to a wrestling match. Um, And let me just say, I, I don't need to get into details, but I wouldn't tell the story if I didn't win, right? So we know how that went down. So I don't know what it was like for a son to rise up against their father, but this is what David was in the middle of. All of a sudden, his son decides, I want to be king. I want David out of here. Enough of this loving kindness. I want to rule. I want to dominate. And so what does David do when well, now his son is rising up against him? He flees. He flees this, the area. He's like, forget it. I'm not fighting my kid. I'll let him take it. This isn't how I roll. Pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 16. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. The king then asked, Where is your master's grandson? Mephibosheth. Ziba said to him, He is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. After all that David had done for him, how could Mephibosheth turn like this? He should have, David should have wiped him out. But instead, David invites him into his home. He has him eat at his family. He protects him when the Gibeonites come after him. And here in this moment, when David is pressured out of the city, he flees for his life, Mephibosheth stays. And it's like, now they're going to give me my father's king, my grandfather's kingdom back. Have you ever been taken advantage of? Have you ever had someone turn their back on you? Have you ever done something, demonstrated this loving kindness for someone, shown grace to someone only to have them turn on you? Well, you've got to know that David was questioning his godlike compassion as he took away Mephibosheth's blessing and passed it on to Ziba. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have extended this loving kindness after all. Maybe that's not the way to live at the end of the day. Well, in time... Absalom's rebel forces were defeated, and David returned to Jerusalem. And there was Ziba at David's beck and call. But wait, there's another twist to this story, and for that we turn to Second Samuel chapter nineteen. And I'm going to read this passage from verse twenty-four all the way through thirty. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. Okay, so the king's been out. Absalom's trying to take over his rebellions defeated and then the king finally returns to the city and there's mephibosheth waiting to meet the king he had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely when he came from jerusalem to meet the king the king asked him why didn't you go with me mephibosheth he said my lord the king since i your servant am lame I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. What? And he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king is like an angel of God. Do whatever you pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why well, say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Now, of course, one of the first questions we ask when we hear a passage like that is how long was David away? Because it says that Mephibosheth didn't trim his mustache the whole time he was away. So, so how long was his mustache? Like that's one of the first things that you were thinking, right? Like, how long was that mustache? Was it, like, Frank Zappa long? Or was it, like, this guy long? Like, how long was this mustache, actually? It's a strange detail that, for some reason, is recorded for us. So he didn't betray him after all. Envy and contempt had turned Ziba against him. But Mephibosheth never lost sight of David's generosity. Now, perhaps the strangest thing of all is that neither David nor Mephibosheth avenged Ziba for this blatant betrayal. David's like, all right, well, I've already given all your stuff away. Let's split it in half. And Mephibosheth's like, who cares? Let him keep it. You're back. That's what matters. This is far from Hollywood. You will never see a movie about the non-Avengers. Imagine that. A bunch of superheroes who don't get back at the bad guys. No, we're not going to avenge this one. We're not going to do it. Now, grace isn't flashy. But it can save us a $350 million budget's worth of wasted energy. As the French writer Voltaire once said, the longer we dwell on our misfortunes, the greater is their power to harm us. And I find it just profound and beautiful how quickly Mephibosheth turns away from this. Yeah, I know, I know he betrayed me, but no, it's okay. Let's just move on. Let's go forward. Jesus taught about this in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's the way things rolled when, G- when David was king. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Someone gets back at you, someone does something harmful to you, you get back at them. But I tell you, Jesus continued, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You see, Mephibosheth knew his life was a gift, and he didn't want to waste it on revenge. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love, slow to anger and rich in Hesed. David learned a said from God, Mephibosheth learned a said from David, and hopefully the train goes on. The experience of humbly receiving kindness from someone reverberates. While David's generosity toward Mephibosheth is something for us to aspire to, learning to receive is also an important aspect of faithful living. And this is where I want to end here this morning. Samir Solmanovec again, he writes, we give because givers are in control. We bless because blessers are in charge. To receive, on the other hand, means to lose something. It is in the act of receiving that we concede God's presence in the other. And so a lot of what I want to talk about is, are we willing to, to give that grace, to give that loving kindness to people, to be like David, to extend that grace? But the other important part of the story is that like, there's a chain here, and we have to also be the people who receive it. We have to be the people who, who allow others to extend us grace, whether that's allowing God to extend us grace, or the people that we've wronged, or the people that we failed. We need to receive it from them. We need to allow others an opportunity to be used by God and to meet our need. The beauty of it is that as we saw in Mephibosheth's refusal to exact revenge, the experience of humbly receiving from another can help prepare us to imitate God, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. I invite you to stand. God's invitation to each one of us is to enter into this conspiracy of kindness. The writer William Penn said, I suspect to pass through this life but once. If therefore there be any kindness I can show, or any good thing I can do to my fellow being, let me do it now, and not defer or neglect it, as I shall not pass this way again. Let's pray. Lord, as we open the pages of Scripture, once again we find ourselves face to face with a story that reminds us of our own story. Uh, People who've wronged us, um, people who we've wronged, decisions about Seeking revenge or payback, or extending grace and loving kindness to people, God, I pray that this story would echo in our minds and hearts throughout the day and the week, and that we would be challenged to to ask ourselves if we are imitating you in this way. Are we extending this kind of has said to the people around us? And I pray that as we do that, it would be a reminder that you have extended that same grace to us. As we sang about this morning, we're all broken, we're all sinful, we all mess up, we all fail but your love comes to us in the middle of it all. And that's what we're celebrating. So we give you thanks. We ask God that you would go with us as we gather around tables to discuss and as we go out into the world to live this out in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, wherever it is we find ourselves this week. Amen.